This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Monica Perez here today with a guest that I'm sure you remember and respect and admire as I do, a real crusader in the fight against college mandates and so much more, a real example to us all of how to have effective activism. Joni McGarry, thank you so much for being here. Hi, Joni. How are you? I'm great, Monica. It's so good to see you and uh, thanks for having me. So, yeah, just before we get into our subject of the day, I wanted to ask you what you're up to right now. And if you have any reflections, I know that you had a big event in Dartmouth last time we talked. How did that go? Just give us a little update. Um, well, I'm taking a little break from the arena just to collect my thoughts and decide, you know, where next to put my efforts because we all have to do something. Um, the event at Dartmouth was great. Uh, Bobby Kennedy came and uh, gave an address on, you know, the pandemic response, which was very exciting. But we had this great panel of experts. People gathered um, face to face, which, you know, now that we're starting to do that again, we forget what happened, that we couldn't do that for a long time. So it was a great success and it was really terrific. So, um, but right now I'm just taking a break and doing a lot of canning. I, oh, that's so wonderful. Well, our audience will absolutely love that. And I'm actually, you know, excited that you're here to talk about something complete. Well, I will, in the end, dovetail it too. I include vaccines and COVID and everything. Absolutely. But, right? But, Same here, yes. But that wasn't the intention. Like, we just wanted to talk about something different. I just love to hear your thoughts. And you are quite erudite. So I, I like to see when you apply <laughs> your skills to a, a subject that's really interesting to me. I did a couple of um, shows on this when I was in radio. And I was just fascinated by it for the longest time. And then when COVID happened, I was like, oh, my gosh. This is what they were talking about, and it is none other than the report from Iron Mountain. So you and I both, you know, have done all the research, but uh, and know the story and the narrative. But I'm going to read just the first paragraph, the introductory paragraph from Wikipedia on what this is, and then I want you to tell me what you think it is, and uh, we can go from there. So the report from Iron Mountain is a book published in 1967. I I'm already think that's significant. Uh, during the Johnson administration by Dial Press, which puts itself forth as the report of a government panel. The book includes the claim that it was authored by a special study group of 15 men whose identities were to remain secret and that it was not intended to be made public. It details the analyses of a government panel, which concludes that war or a credible substitute for war is necessary if governments are to maintain power. The book was a New York Times bestseller, nonfiction, I would add, and has been translated into 15 languages. Controversy still swirls over whether the book was a satiric hoax about think tank logic and writing style 
or the product of a secret government panel. The document is a favorite among conspiracy theorists who reject the statement made in 1972, which you sent me yesterday, um, Joni, by satirist Leonard Lewin, that the book was a spoof and that he was its author. So does that sound, do you, do you buy that? Do I buy that? That th whole that story, that whole paragraph, like it was a hoax or that, I mean, I guess, I guess it doesn't actually say definitively that it's a hoax, but that the author said it was a hoax. What do you think? Well, at first I thought it wasn't a hoax and I read it twice. Um, and then I read some reviews of it and I read, I, I looked into Leonard Lewin and what his background was. And this guy, Victor Novosky, who um, apparently he was in the mix in saying, you know, it should be published as nonfiction, but he also encouraged Lewin to write it. Um, and so at the end of the day, I do think it is satire and that, um, I, so I don't think it's a real document. However, it's also possible because of the times, because now I know these things happen, that perhaps it was, and then he had to walk it back. But my my gut feelings from reading it and from looking at it is that it was satire. I mean, Lewin had done um, some editing of a collection of uh, political satires before that. He had been a very harsh critic of Herman Kahn, whom he mentions in the report. I mean, this does look like Herman Kahn, who was like the original war gamer, the original take morality out of your analysis guy. Right. He's shocking in itself. And I mean, it's it's not very satirical. It's actually pretty, if it were a satire, it's actually so accurate that <laughs> it's, right. it's, you know, it, yeah. So I, I went through the same process as you, I think pretty much like I first totally thought it was real. And then I read a few things that made me think that it wasn't real. I would give you a few examples of why I thought it, you know, cast doubt. One is that it was Prouty, Prouty, who wrote a few things. One thing about the JFK assassination, some people thought he might have been deep throat. He wrote, um, you know, it, the Secret Service, like stuff about the deep state operations. And he was a deep state guy. He said, and I think this is probably the most accurate way to describe it, is that it it wasn't literally true. Like this was not a report of these 15 guys, uh, but it was basically how they think and what they do. And it it was it was so close to the truth as you could consider it true. Now, John Kenneth Galbraith, who was writing an editorial under a different name, he had a nom de plume. I forget what the, what his name was, but he was an icon. I believe he was like a, a superlative, like a Nobel Prize winner or whatever, something like that, economist and historian. And each of these 15 guys supposedly had two, were, had to be- Two areas of expertise. Two, right. So yeah. he would have fit the bill and he definitely would have been on such a panel. And he said he would stake his reputation on the, his claim that it was true and real and he was on it or invited to be on it or was a side guy. However, he wrote that under a false name. So that is almost funny. Interesting. And then the Leonard Lewin thing, when he walked it back, that to me, you know, that kind of thing made me think that it was more real. Right. Because the way he said it, yeah, like, it, and it was after, you know, I thought that was weird. Well, I think that, and, and that just goes to say, it goes to show like the times we live in and the times they apparently lived in too, because it's a good reminder that, even though we think now is very unique, um, we don't know what to believe. 
And the fact that even though that the things in this, whether even if we say, okay, we don't think it's real, it doesn't matter because the suggestions read like a blueprint, like you and I were talking about for things that are happening now. And there's, they're outrageous, but I, I think you, one would be naive to think that these things aren't discussed in a similar manner behind closed doors. Yes. I, I, you know, I like eugenics and population control in that kind of harsh of a way. I, I just think it'd be naive. Yes, I agree with that. And just to reiterate what this is, it's a, it, the actual full title is on the report from Iron Mountain on the possibility and desirability of peace. And they are given, I, I don't want to leave the question of like why it was published at that time right. before yet. Yeah, I'm not finished with that. But it was, um, they were given a few requirements, a few ground rules. It was, they wanted to talk about if war, so I, my recollection of the background is that after nuclear weapons were introduced, which Tesla always said, I want to make the weapon to end all weapons. If everybody had a pocket nuke or whatever, he didn't know it was a nuke, but everybody had a weapon, nobody would hurt anyone. It's like my idea about women and gun control. Like, I don't, if you have to have gun control, have gun control. As long as every single woman is required to carry a gun, then <laughs> you could disarm everybody else, but we need them yeah. to defend ourselves because men are just like in armed hand to hand combat. They, will be able to defeat us. So if we had total defense, we would be safe and not aggressive. I, you know, I wouldn't be aggressive, but anyway, so that was the idea behind it. And they said with nukes, no one would ever pop off a nuke because even a little country could disintegrate your country. So right. we might be on the precipice of not war and what, and could we still, it's a threefold question. Would human society survive? Would Americans would they decide? Would they survive peace? You're not saying would they yes. survive nuclear yes. war? If there's no more war, right? Would okay. would um, it says survival of human society, American society specifically, mm-hmm. and the stability of American society? And it seemed to me, in the end, it always came back to having to maintain the hierarchical status quo. That's what all they care about is power, guys talking about maintaining power in a post-war world. Oh, I felt the same way. I thought that the under the overriding theme, which was not, it was spoken, but not specifically stated, is they talked about stability, stability, stability. And what they were really talking about is how do we keep the population in check? How do we keep them obedient to the political rule? And if you don't have an existential force outside your nation state, um, which they posit is necessary for that, now what do we do? So we'll have to invent things or do these measures to keep people obedient. It was never about the value of peace. It was never about the value of not destroying things. It was always everything. The whole aim of it was about obedience and keeping control as is everything now in my view. And so you you step back and you think, wow, this is a really overarching theme of government. That reminds me of something I read about Chinese society historically, like uh, with the dynasties that they suppress, this may or may not be true, but I heard about it and it reminds (laughs) me of this, that they suppress technology in order to maintain the hierarchy. They knew if technology, that if you had a world-changing technology, whatever that may be, Mm -hmm. gunpowder or something, then that would put the, the hierarchical structure in peril, like it, or it was absolutely certain that it could not. So I always felt like 
we were on the precipice of te a technological advancement, which would have done exactly what Tesla wanted, which was usher in peace. And they, and they don't talk about this openly. They talk about substituting for war. But I think that they had to have contemplated and probably carried out really suppressing technology. Like, so I always think of technology as their weapon against us. But I do believe that technology is what creates the problem and that we we would be beyond this kind of hierarchical society if we had all the technology that, you know, exists in secret, like the occulted technology. I think they suppress technology in order to make sure that the hierarchy is in place in addition to the, what they're looking at here. I think one of the things they absolutely do and did is that. And then I want to tell you how that folds into why I think they released this at that time. So let's say it was, I'm not going to call it a satire. I'm not going to call it a hoax. I'm going to say it was a, a release. They released this for a reason. Well, yeah. And even if you could say, even if it were a satire, this place published it, it got traction. Um, so it, one could say it was an, it was definitely intentional. Yes. And I think dial press was, was, Suppose not a satirical thing. I believe it was E.L. Doctorow. It was E.L. Doctorow. Yeah, and he came out later, and somebody asked him in an interview, have you ever been involved in a hoax? And I was like, that is such a ridiculous question. And of <laughs> course, he was like, sure, the report from Iron Mountain was a hoax. So whatever, but um, yes, so they, so yeah, 5,000, the government bought Ordered and distributed 5,000 5, copies. Yes, yeah. it was on the New York Times bestseller list for nonfiction you know, so, but the reasons I think they might have released it at the time is that as a, a few possibilities. So JFK made a speech in August 1963. I think, yeah, it was June yeah. 1963. JFK made a speech at American University, which I always felt got him killed. And it's, he said, I want a, a peace, a lasting world peace, not mm -hmm. a Pax Americana but a peace for all people for all times. And I feel like that was foreshadowing this new society that he knew as president was possible. Because mm -hmm. why wouldn't it be possible? Yeah, especially if he, once he got, I, I always feel like there was something about, it was Algeria or something. There was some war that we set up in, it was around his time where the CIA like created and fomented, created, and fomented tribal conflict to justify uh, maybe Angola war. And I think mm -hmm. if, if JFK saw that, he realized that we were in a post-war world and we were actually ginning these wars up mm -hmm. on purpose mm -hmm. and he just wouldn't, wouldn't have it. So, right. so if there was a think tank like this that was real, they said it was set up in August 1963, which would have been two months after but it wasn't, but they said it was completed in March 1966 and that it was published in 1967. And that, that was interesting to me because Quigley gave up, uh, published Tragedy and Hope in 1966. And one of the few boxes I've already unpacked is I have a first edition. I don't even tell people oh. this. I don't think it's as valuable as you might think, but the first edition of Tragedy and Hope is, um, special because they started, they started, they broke the, the plates for it. After they published it, they broke the plates. So they're, they resumed publishing it years later, but mm -hmm. the, it, they might have modified a few things. I don't know. I still haven't read it, but 
But Tragedy and Hope was about there is an elite that basically runs the world and mm -hmm. and he thinks that it's good that they do it. Quigley, who was a professor, was Clinton, uh, Clinton's mentor, I believe. He said, it's good that they do it. I just don't think they should be secret about it. Mm. And that, because of that reasoning, was the exact same reason presented for why the whistleblower came out of the think tank and gave Lewin the report from right. Iron Mountain. He said, like, the same thing. I agree with it, but I uh, don't think it should be secret. But the difference is with Quigley, it was a private elite of no authority. Whereas when you read the report from Iron Mountain, it's our government trying to keep our society stable. You know what I'm saying? So it, it's a little bit better. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Right, it, but it's ostensibly our government because, you know, and maybe it wasn't so much as now as it was then or so much then as it is now. I think there are a lot of forces beyond our government that bring pressure to bear, you know, to, to feel like we, our government is, you know, the whole thing read as if we were some kind of colony actually. That's oh, how it felt to me. Like, I felt like it was like the people in the government, the below that level were some kind of colonial um, civilization under that. So it didn't feel like it was a government thing, even though it ostensibly was government. That's a, a really fantastic way of looking at it because I was trying to think of how, like, it's so devoid of the concept of representation. Oh, completely. Of, of um, authority, of, like, legitimate authority, of constitutional bounds, of moral restraint, completely. Yes, and also one thing that's interesting, in, in the end of it, they come up with this um, structure on how they're going to, like, they propose all these things that we're going to talk about, but then they say, you know, we think we should have by pre by executive order, this you know war committee and this peace committee that have no accountability to anybody and has like an unlimited budget is totally secret and that was the proposal, like yes. that's the action item coming out of here and it, like if ten years ago or even five years ago I would have been like oh, that could never happen, but wow. I think it happens all the time, you know and so that was really interesting to me that it had nothing to do with like you said, representation, there was no consideration of any human being at all um, and what was best for society or people. So I think there's a couple of ways to look at that, how they set that up and why they're telling us about it. One, I'm not a huge believer in the revelation of the method theory. I don't know if mm -hmm. you know this. Do you know mm -hmm. what this theory is? It's that the reason they give us predictive programming and tell yeah. us in advance is that we we imply our consent by our cooperation, right. which it right. opens with. It does open with that. Like, we can tell you all about this. This wasn't even a top secret document because it doesn't matter if you know there's nothing you will do about it. You, right. you, you won't really react in any kind of effective way, which is kind of obnoxious, but it's true. So I actually don't believe in the revelation of the method so much as it's this arrogant braggadocia for other 
competitor elite that these people do have the power to do this stuff and rub our face in it. But but more than that, I think that the predictive programming element of this was, or why they released it on purpose, which I think they did, mm-hmm. is that they wanted to introduce us to the idea of the necessity of the technocracy. Ah, yes. That's a great point. Yeah, if something is leaked and they really think that society is too complex for us to just um, deal with it organically, like we believe that, and now we think, well, somebody's got to control. It almost made me feel better to think that they were doing it on purpose. Like if somebody's in control, I've heard people say that to me before. It's like, I wish somebody was in control. Your conspiracy would be great. I'm like, oh. Do you really wish that though? I know, because look what they do. They kill people. So yes, yeah, so you think that that's a possibility because I, I only when reading it again, like eight years, nine years later, did I even think of that? Well, and especially right now, I yeah, I think it's a possibility. I I always have such a um, I have a don't know mind about things like that because you know I hate to look at everything through that lens, but increasingly it seems like everything can be seen through that lens. You know, I mean, even silly, like seemingly silly things like pop culture and, you know, Netflix and all of like the Simpsons, it, it, you think, oh, that's just a coincidence. Somebody was just in the writer's room. But the fact of the matter is it does soften you up a bit. You're like, oh, somewhere in my brain. I, I heard about test tube babies. Like when I was reading the part that said that, like we absolutely have to remove conception from humans that it has, it's imperative that it be done in a test tube, um, you know, as part of the ecological problems when you end war, which I thought was like this crazy leap. Like it, they didn't even support why that was necessary. But, and then I remember, well, geez, you know, when was it sometime in the nineties, maybe on network television, they redid um, brave new world. I don't know if you saw it. Oh, I didn't. It was at, it was actually quite good at the time. I thought it was quite good. And I thought of that. And then I thought, well, yeah, I've, I mean, I knew about that kind of thing, but I thought, well, I saw it on TV. You know, you just don't even realize you're doing that. And it becomes, it's not shocking. because It's not the first time you've seen it. I, I must've been in a fugue state in, it was like January, February, 2020. So just before lockdown, I don't know how I did it. I, Saw on my doorstep Ted Kaczynski's Technological Slavery. I had ordered it from Amazon while watching a Forensics Files. And it's about going off the grid. It's about completely checking out of society. And and as soon as lockdown happened, I was like, oh my gosh, he was so right. I have no food. I can't do anything. This is right. terrible. I'm totally dependent. And I was like, why did they put that in my mind? And now I think that there's a possibility that they're really setting us up to be tribal or to have a big clash or whatever. Like the fact that even after reading this report from Iron Mountain, I thought the fact that there are, that they've really made um, really like there's a big anti, I'm going to call it anti-vax. I don't care if some people think that's pejorative, but that they're, that they, they really made it so that it was divided by politics. And that made the anti-vax camp much bigger, actually, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And I thought, why are they doing that? Why are they giving these people a place and then as I read the report from Iron Mountain that they, that throughout, like consistently in this, they talk about the fact that the, in order to keep the hierarchy in place, society cohesive, whatever, you need something big and bad. You need something super bad, like a real threat to life. And yes. you need something big and complex 
commensurate with the size and complexity of society. And time and time again, it seems to me that the examples I thought of what they might be doing this, you know, is that it's something, it is society itself, it's humanity itself, or it's half of humanity, domestic terrorism or whatever. Yes. So they need to have the other is us. Well, they, they, they even come out and say that um, because it, it talks about, you know, if you don't have war and their premise, again, is you need war in order to have um, cohesiveness in society and societal stability. I, I think that there could be a world without that. But, you know, at this point, if that's the working um, premise and it says that the um, for, we need to motivate basic allegiance as distinct. For, OK, it, and you need an alternate energy. And it must imply a more immediate, tangible, and directly felt threat of destruction. It must justify the need for taking and paying a blood price. Like they talked a lot about blood price. It has to be, you know, the fictive models. The, it has to have the weight of extraordinary conviction and not an inconsiderable, act, inconsiderable actual sacrifice of life. This was something to substitute for war. And my first thought was, you know, a bioweapon. Definitely. you know, a germ. And then you add in, you know, you, you divide people into two camps, right? And the unvaccinated are the unwashed, the unclean, and you've got it, right? And you've got it worldwide. It, you know, everybody was in lockstep. So I agree. I, I, a lot of these things just resonated with what we've just been through. Let's talk about the there's like five categories and each one requires a certain thing economic, sociological, political, ecological, and cultural slash scientific. And then I want to talk about the few things that I came up with that check all those boxes. Some, some that check only some, and they can, they, I definitely feel like they have launched um, a, a lot of these different ones. Mm -hmm. And it's just like when they have created persons, like many are called, but few are chosen. I think <laughs> they set them all in motion and see mm -hmm. which ones will work. But I just want to jump in and say, when you say the five areas, the premise was that most people approaching the peace question, the peace problem, were only approaching it according to this working committee um, from an economical standpoint, that it was just like, oh, we got to retool the factories and that's what's going to have to happen. But this committee said there are five areas that must be substantially addressed in order to have a stable society during peacetime. And those were the five areas. I just wanted to point that out in case somebody hadn't read it. Yes, because war is not, he says that the, that you assume that war is there to protect society, but war is actually the substructure of society. Of society and right. I noticed but, that they're moving away from sports as like the national pastime because in my opinion, because that's war. And that's, so like golf is okay because it's not mono a mono whatever you know golf is a game yeah, i don't even think you can say that that's so sexist yeah oh sorry but i just it's true <laughs> but it's true but i just yeah. feel like they don't care about sports anymore they don't care about like they take any in football they let that tank they have men doing women's stuff like they don't care about yeah. sports anymore they're letting it go right because they're letting war go as the substructure and i don't know what the new entertainment is it's just abstraction whatever but yet they talk about the need to have like blood games well, like, and you know, like the Hunger Games, right? Yes, and entertainment I, is so gory, especially Netflix. I can hardly watch it, but I wanted to tell you, you mentioned Netflix. Netflix was established by Edward Bernays's nephew. Nephew, I know. Yes, isn't that funny? That's so rich. Cannot make that stuff up. Right. So, uh, okay. So the one thing it never does, though, because like when I 
snapped out of it reading this thing. I was like, but they're what they will never consider two things. They'll never consider that society is self-ordering. And, and the only reason we need a hierarchy is because of um, like warfare and welfare, because of fiscal or physical insecurity. And that's where that technology thing comes in as technology advances. And they talk about that being the problem. That as technology advances, you just don't have people hungry enough to do the menial work. Mm-hmm. And you need to make sure that they're hungry enough to do the menial work. But but what's wrong with letting that thought experiment play out and just say, well, why? You know, why? And it's and it always comes down to the assumption that we need to secure the hierarchy. Right. And I agree. And I think that's why those questions never get taken up in earnest. Right. Um, and, and I don't know whether it's just because... They're like, nope, we're not going to take that up. Or it attracts the kind of person that doesn't even, it doesn't occur to them to take it up. No, because they state it. They state that these are the three assumptions we are not to question. And that the goal is to maintain the stability of the American right. society as is. So they they know that it's, see, that's why this is way too sophisticated for, Le- for Lewin to just have dashed off. Like, there's just no chance of that. I'm not mm-hmm. saying that it really happened in exactly this way, but, uh, and they definitely pull some punches. They say, we're not going to tell you the real answers because we don't want this to leak out. Right. Uh, but one thing that they don't talk about, which would be the real answer, in my opinion, is uh, I'm going to call them legitimate in air quotes. I don't know what that even means, but like traditional, let's say traditional religions. There are religions in the world that would take care of this. Never mentioned. Right. Never mentioned. Except for Never a fake mentioned. one. I think at one point they say we can recreate a mythology. Right. Right. Yeah. And I was just thinking, well, we'll recreate the mythology of science in the expert class, you know? Yes. Yes. The the priests are the scientists. Like that could right. be actually- Only some even... scientists. Only some yes, scientists. Yes. I didn't even think of, see, I, I actually jotted down some of the ones I thought they knew about but didn't mention. And I think the dog that didn't bark the loudest- is is a pandemic. They did not talk about that. And that right. would have, would make scientists priests and also the climate change thing. They talk a little bit about pollution. It's so it, there's so much to un- unpack. Yes. I mean, yeah, there really is. I want to like very cursorily the five things that I rattled off. Let's just hit what are the absolute must haves in each of these. So like economic. So a must-have for economic was that it had to be wasteful. It had to be outside the economy. So it couldn't be welfare because welfare becomes part of the fabric. Right. And in order to really control the ups and downs of society, they called it a flywheel, which I never understood the concept of. I'm only beginning to understand it now that, that defense spending is so wasteful that they could cut it to zero or double it as needed. Arbitrarily, right. In order to control the economy and make sure they were generating enough waste, which, you know, you think, oh, well, I kind of get that concept. But then you step back and you think, why are we generating waste? Right. Why not just generate leisure? Or, you know, just let the market work. Yes. So conceptually, that one's really, really hard. And I guess if you wanted to think of it nicely, you would think, well, droughts happen, right? So you have to have silos and silos of grain. And it is wasteful because you can't just give it away to people, but they won't starve to death. 
that's not what's happening here. Right. That's not what's happening here. But and it's not one, nice. One thing that I really don't, I cannot intuit economically, but it's a quote out of this book. And it's another, I can't intuitive economically, I can't intuit it, it now with the pandemic, but it was an element of the pandemic. And it says, uh, war solves the inventory problem. Because it destroys things. Yes. And I guess it just means that manufacturing is so efficient that in order to have that vortex of money and power sucking up to the top all the time, you have to uh, just be in a constant state of overproduction. Right. And, and what better way to do that with sending tanks and people and guns and ammo, because that stuff is built to be destroyed. Yes, that's funny. It's and built to, you know, it's that's the purpose of it. It's built to be destroyed, and then you make more, and then you leave it in places like Afghanistan for no good reason other than, oh, we got to build some more. Yes, and some people say that, and I, it's, I'm sure it's true, that like they fired rockets into the same cave in Afghanistan like a hundred times. Like there's no- use it up. Yeah, they just used it up and they were old. But, but that was one thing about the pandemic, like the lockdown that people stopped producing, but continued to consume it. It's proof positive that we had uh, vast surpluses of inventory proof Mm -hmm. positive. And I just, I thought to myself, like just from my economic mind, like I couldn't conceive of having surplus inventory that needed to be destroyed. But I think I underestimate how, how centrally planned and how consolidated manufacturing is at the top that you could get everybody kind of on board with that or enough people, you know, the controlling class on board with that. Well, for a time you could, but then, you know, it did trigger a lot of shortages and things that, you know, and maybe that was all intentional too, because, you know, there were shortages in cars, there were shortages in pharmaceutical things, and there were shortages that really lowered our standard of life. And so, you know, our standard of living and also that all of that, you know, lockdown and consumption was driven only toward a few wealthy companies. I mean, it wiped out. So that was like used as a tool, but I I, I was reading it transferred to tech. Oh, the the amount of wealth transfer to, you know, the Jeff Bezos of the world was profound. Yes. Yes. Um, It was, you know, like obscene. It was obscene. It was very <laughs> deliberate. It was very deliberate. And it was so regressive in that I just remember in this neighborhood I lived in, like people were just selling out the Costco and stockpiling stuff in an empty room and every kid had a laptop. And I was just like, do you, can you conceive of a family where two kids share a room? <laughs> like, how do you think that staying home for school is okay? Like every kid needs his own computer and they got a computer in every kid's hands like even if well the, the wealthy yeah, so you're right yes no but did. then the schools started handing them out wow. you know what i mean so you you did like you transferred the wealth again like to wow yeah so that does but the whole economic thing it i couldn't grok it and i kept thinking and i kept thinking it was because well i don't have an economic background and monica's going to know this thing but i think i couldn't grok it because it doesn't make any sense. They're leaving pieces of it out. And what right. it is, is that we have a totally centrally controlled thing where uh, a very few people, we're here to serve a very small group of people and have no respect for you know legitimacy or the individuals. And, and one of the things about this economic flywheel was that it had to be something unattainable and never ending, I think was the thing. It right. had to be something just limitless. So, and that's why yeah. they like they, they they came up with maybe one idea is the space program. Yes, right. Yes. But then they even said, but unless we 
even that would peter out unless we created an existential space threat with the whole, like all of a sudden now we have, and I know they're not called UFOs anymore. They're called, I don't know, UAPs. There have to be hostile aliens or it's not going to work. And they need to prove that they're hostile aliens. Right. Right. So like, what's that going to look like? I would say, so I always think of this as a parallel is that there are two possibilities. It's the hostile aliens that you can't see from above. Or the tri- like a virus, yeah, the trillions of invisible <laughs> monsters that are everywhere trying to kill us all, you right. know? <laughs> like they're invisible. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then you have that that priestly class. I didn't even catch that. That's another. So the pandemic, in my mind, checks every box for every category. But there are other things that do too. Oh, for sure. So that's economic, political. The only political takeaway I got was that it had to be big and bad. That politics could not exist without a big bad enemy. Right. And, and you, and the the whole goal of it was to keep people obedient to the political rule. Yes. To keep in on, to keep the disruptive forces in check. Oh, that gets to sociological, but I would say with the political stuff, they at no time did they suggest that there's a need for a political structure, like the courts, the police, like there, there's no, that poverty, like they don't talk Never about Never mentioned. Right. As a driver for political power, like that those things don't really do it. Is this the one where he said like, they, there are two different kinds of, yeah, two different kinds of political study groups. One like this that you will never hear about or see. And one that's 100% for the public, like has no impact. So they're two mutually exclusive right. things. This, which actually controls things, and the other, which keeps people thinking that's what's happening. Well, and it's also like a little um, poly, is it um, like a Pollyanna thing? It's like a romanticized version that you can actually do good. It was just, you know, like we're so objective and we're doing the right thing and it's hard work. And two of us had heart attacks, by the way. Oh, I noticed that. that, You know, that was great. Good one. And so like, you know, the burden is heavy, but we'll carry it in order to keep you obedient to us. I mean, yes. and these, these weren't government employees. They were, you know, 15 people selected for their expertise in the civilian population, but they were all elites. Academic, business, legal, all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's Astronomer, true. Astronomer, assistants. I mean, I have the whole thing, a scholar and a literary critic, critic you know. Um, and there's no, and at no point do they say that the stability of society is is good for the people because they talk about killing people. So they can't. They can't say that they're trying to save lives or improve lives because what they are constantly saying is this is how we can, right. you know, this will be a less good life. More people will die. They will have less control. <laughs> well, or we'll try to kill the right people because one point they do make mm-hmm. is how war um, is a regressive form of eugenics because you're taking you know, like, well, it isn't so much now because we don't send all of our right. best young men That's to the front. That was one of their goals. Um, Right. So they want it like, and, and one of the things they actually said was, you know, nuclear war is, um, it's better from a eugenics perspective because it kills indiscriminately. So you're not just taking out your 20 year old. It kills civilians. grandma and some babies. And, you know, you're, you got the whole spectrum here. So, but you know, again, I think even if this were satire, you know, this stuff is being discussed. Definitely. It's definitely discussed because it's, I mean, we know now because that's that's how they think and that's what they're doing. And if you 
unless you really believe the official narrative of COVID from beginning to end. I mean, some people think it was a lab leak. I I personally think it was definitely intentionally released. I I actually think it was spread through (laughs) through people being vaccinated and the advanced technology and contagious vaccines, which actually isn't even that advanced because in children they're talking about it. Now they're talking about, but they're always in children's cancer wards, there was a you couldn't go in if you were just vaccinated, like people who traveled a lot and got those weird vaccines. Mm. Yeah. There were signs on, on the um, children's wards that if you were freshly vaccinated, you could not go in there because they, you do shed. You shed. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, if you shed, you shed. So, so, but uh, yeah. So I think that that is such, it's, it's not just indiscriminate. It's quite discriminate. It, It really was targeting old people, sick people, the fatalities from COVID were that. And weirdly, the VAX trials, the published VAX trials did not include any of the target groups for the first, you know, so pregnant women, sick kids, um, old people, obese people, like these people were excluded from the trials and they were the ones who were the first you know, the first receivers of this stuff. And that seemed to me like they were working on a, like a progressive eugenics right. war solution. Well, you know, it seems so cynical and dark, but, you know, when you look at the fact that the people who knew better or know better, even if you say, okay, maybe it wasn't that, which I, I think it is. Um, I think it's a bioweapon. I mean, I, whether it was leaked or intentionally or by mistake, there's no way it emerged from a wet market. I think there was a lot of evidence yes. that, you know, is incontrovertible. Um, but the trials were a sham, a terrible sham. They, people lied about what they were. Um, even what was in them, even what was in them was shocking and underreported. Oh, totally. And no, it, well, that's as well, I don't want to get too off, you know, tangent, but there's no meat. There's no press anymore. I mean, at least when this report, <laughs> at least when this report came out, people like on the left were reliably anti-war and the media was reporting stuff, even though they were still probably bought and sold for. There was investigative reporting that doesn't yeah. even happen anymore. So uh, the population then versus the population now, it's like we all are in so mud, right? And that's the, that's the euphemistic slavery I want to talk about yes. that they talked about for societal, societal control. But so with the vaccine thing, they rolled out uh, something that was a completely untested, known to be to have safety problems. And then they convinced everybody and they convinced the educated, which was really kind of interesting. I found the answer in this book for that. I couldn't figure out why they were taking out the educated. And in this report from Iron Mountain, it makes it very clear they need the carriers of water and they need the hierarchy. But if you get rid of war or whatever it is you're getting rid of, you're going to have a skilled class of disgruntled, obsolete people. And I wondered about that. I wondered if this fax was meant to take out that educated middle class, the professional class, that it was meant to take that class out because that it's like the bourgeois as a threat to the, the, you know, the the ruling monarchy. Yes. Like at the French revolution, like it was the, it was the rich and powerful people who didn't like the rung just above them. And I feel like the vax was meant to take that out and they didn't care. They want the unwashed masses. They don't care if they're unvaxed or whatever. They need them to carry the water, which is the term they use. 
Well, yeah, it is. And I think, you know, you know, maybe that's true. I don't know. I've never thought about it that way, but I thought it was very interesting that all of these um, colleges were mandating it. And so this is like, a, you know, our young men and women. And what I also think could be a very sinister thing about that. And again, I don't know, right? I, I really, the more I dig and the more I do all this stuff, I'm increasingly cynical, but I also have, I'm trying to keep a very, you know, open mind, you know, you're hitting your reproductive population. And this, we don't know. We don't know. And there are a lot of signs that, you know, this is not going to be good for reproduction. Was that intentional? I mean, they knew this stuff went straight to the ovaries. They knew. They knew like in Japanese studies in animals and they stopped studying after a certain point and then they mandated it. And that goes right to, which one was it about ecological? That goes right to um, birth control in the water. All right. So let's, let's do sociological real quick and then we'll do ecological, which is sociological, the two things that that had to do was neutralize the destabilizing element. So you can have um, soldiers Dissidents. and slaves, prison imprisonment, like you can do that. And that's what we do. We have the incarceration problem. We have, uh, you can just send the soldiers away as fodder. You have slaves to debt, to, to uh, slaves to drugs. Like those are the things that gets rid of, uh, neutralizes the destabilizing element. And the other thing was, to ensure social cohesiveness and usually nationalism or national security will get people to do that. But it could easily be that you solve both of those problems like the same way with say the drug war that you get right. the destabilizing element to voluntarily become mentally ill through drug addiction and threaten the middle class who then wants to have a, uh, you know, police state or whatever. So the national security threat or domestic terrorism, like the national security, that cohesion can come from, an enemy within or an enemy without. Well, and it's interesting how they, it's the war on drugs. It's the war on poverty. Yeah. Or a slave to debt or a slave to drugs. Like the, the language they use in here is in those things. Well, and then we all, you know, and, and it makes people into others, right? So the people who are opioid addiction, you know, I don't want to live in next door. It's an other, right? You know, you don't want them. I mean, I'm not like I or anybody, right? The, yeah, tell me I, that. That I'm living in my own house. It's not cool. <laughs> no, no, it's awful. <laughs> not cool. But, you know, but then when you look at that too, I mean, that was a manufactured, deliberate thing. It was. And, you know, they knew and they did it. And I think they had motive to do it, you know? Um, so yeah, they, they talk about um, a, a technologically, a, they, what do they call it? A um, sophisticated form of slavery that yeah. you're going to need to take care of. Yes. Euphemistic slavery. And it's not just those things. I think it's also the way we're propagandized now so effectively by television. And if, you know, I like when I go to visit my mom, um, I watch a network television. I'm watching today's show. I'm watching Hallmark. I'm watching the nightly news. And it is remarkable, the messaging and the, it's like a soma to the masses. First of all, you're, you're, you're not told the truth about anything, but everybody is dumbed down. People are in a trance. So that's another form of slavery. And we're all addicted oh, to our yes, phones. We're yes. all addicted to entertainment. Oh my gosh, what are we going to do? They're on strike in Hollywood. Yeah, that's true. Speaking of propaganda, before we moved on from this, about uh, the mandates in colleges, in schools, in also hospitals, what they did with that, not that people haven't observed this already, but what they did with that was they those two places where you learn stuff, um, especially about health, 
they've eliminated any anyone who is not mm-hmm. willing to submit to the vax. So you will never interact with someone, or at least during that time, in the hospital or in a university that that had a different viewpoint. So um, even for if, the most part, yeah. yeah. So even if ninety percent of the people rejected it it doesn't matter because the hospitals and the colleges and the schools were all manned by people who capitulated whether they wanted to or not. But, you know, that in itself may be more powerful. It may be more powerful to force somebody to capitulate and having them advocate for your side just because of the psychological trauma. Right. But in any case, so yeah, the propaganda happened in the military too. Oh yes. And I I think it was deliberate in the military because I don't think they want a strong military. Right, because they don't need the war anymore, right? Because the military is a warehouse now. According to the euphemistic form of slavery, the soldier, the military would be warehousing, like the incarceration. It's just you're trying to get rid of the undesirable element, which is why, like, and and I noticed this, I was looking this up recently, that um, minorities and um, people from lower classes and stuff, like, make up a much larger percentage of the soldier class than they mm-hmm. did like when this was written. Well, because they have since conscri- conscription was ended. Maybe that's why. Maybe it's like the the uh alcohol. They the the drug war never ends because it targets minorities, I think. And whereas the prohibition No, I think they got rid of the draft because of public um pressure. Yes. Because the, you know, and then sometimes I think, geez, bring back the draft. Because then you'd have pressure. Yeah. Yeah. We'd have, because people would be, because everyone's asleep. I mean, what we're doing around the world in, like, what we're pushing in Ukraine, we're in uh, Syria, we're in Africa, we're doing these things. And if, if our, if, if, if the wealthy class had their sons going yeah, off, that's a good point. Things would change. Things would change. And, and also just, well, one other thing that you were talking about, about like, maybe like in that theory of that they want to take out the educated class. What was interesting though, is when the vaccines came out and people were divided into camps, most people who were not having it were not that class. Like it just, I don't think they expected that whoever they are, the people who were running the vaccines, they didn't expect, you know, the, the working class, the people who just had a gut reaction saying, Hey, I'm not taking this, you know, you think they, I, I I don't know. Um, you know, I think that I think they were they should have anticipated problem in you know the black community after things like the Tuskegee. Well, that they and, should have. Yeah, that I think they yeah. did, and they targeted. Oh, actually, them. I'm ma- actually I am making your point for you. So I I walk that back. I'm making your point. <laughs> I think, but I do think that they. I remember seeing clips of of them planning to target minority communities with propaganda pretty hard. Yeah. Yeah. So I think they anticipated that. And I feel like they, they set up, I don't know. I feel like they chose the left to be the pro-vaxxers. You don't think so? Oh yeah. Because they, they held the vax until Biden got in office and Trump was really useful for them because, you know, it it was, if the narrative flipped from, Oh, I'm not taking anything developed under Trump. And now all of a sudden, (laughs) you know, what changed, you know, it was, yeah. So I, I agree. And I think anyway, we're getting far afield of this, but it's still, it still comes down to that whole concept of societal control by the elite that you perceive to have been elected by you. But, you know, we don't have representative government, you know, we don't, it's, 
No, and it I think really, part of this was to get that in our heads. Like you were saying earlier, like it's like, oh, in your head. Yeah, I think that they are they were introducing us to the technocracy. But one thing that went under the sociological heading was the blood sacrifice. And the pandemic has that too. And so yes, does the does. vaccine. Yep. But they won't acknowledge the vaccine part. It's, you know, all that stuff is um, long COVID. But there is, there is a really robust undercurrent that does know it. And they know, you know, that's something I got from this is that they were very fine. Like one of the uh, suggestions they made as like the enemy would be to have an international police force, like make the UN the scary enemy. Right. You know, right. I mean, that'll blow your mind like that. So that's why if it is a, a, a satire by Lewin, it doesn't matter because that. Well, that would like, is that clear. Was an option. Yes, it's clear that, that it option. could work. And so when I, so they obviously introduce things in order for them to be held up to contempt or in order for them to be divisive, they, they want and need the opposition. I'm not, whether they actually control it or not, they want and need the anti-vax people. And they, they want you to know about the vax injuries because it keeps cohesion in that group and it's war. Mm -hmm. And that ca that brings the war element into the pandemic thing. So the pandemic thing like aliens would be all of humanity versus the other. But they seem to still need the war element. And with climate change, too, there's plenty of ecological stuff or whatever climate stuff that got out that discredits the climate change movement, the global warming movement that came out from on high, like that was leaked and everything like mm -hmm. they wanted. They brought the war element to that, too. Hey, y'all. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Joni McGarry on the report from Iron Mountain. I couldn't get through a single news cycle during lockdown without thinking how well the pseudo-pandemic fit every single criteria as a substitute for war that the report from Iron Mountain laid out. But I love talking to Joni about stuff like this because I feel like the scales fell from her eyes more recently than they did from mine, so she's still peering cautiously into every rabbit hole and bringing some skepticism and some, let's say, scrupulous discernment to any subject at hand. So I really like talking about these kinds of things with her and I hope to do more of it on various subjects, but we are not finished with this one. So if you want to hear part two, it should be in my feed very soon, Deep Dives with Monica Perez on your favorite podcasting platform. If you love the podcast but hate the commercials, you can support me in uh, another way. You can go to iTunes. It's the only place it's available right now. Deep Dives Premium is my commercial-free feed, so it's all my audio but commercial-free. But if right now you want to hear the rest of the conversation and you're a member of Rockfin or you want to subscribe, go to rockfin.com slash deep dives. And also, you can should be able to find this in its entirety on Monica Perez show on Rumble. Hope you enjoyed the show.